Welcome to the Friday edition of the pod. We're going to review Thursday night football, Packers Cardinals. My review may or may not include a little hating on Aaron Rodgers and some of the narratives coming out of that game. Plus, I got three best bets. Of course, this is for information purposes only. For the rest of week eight, it is an all underdog week. This is Unexpected Points, the NFL's number one analytics podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome, welcome, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining me again as we're going to review Thursday night football and then get into my favorite plays of the weekend. We have a few plays this weekend that I genuinely have a strong opinion on these, and I like these a lot. So uh, I'm excited about it. Three different plays that we have there. Uh, Before we get anything, I want to thank you for the support that you've shown me by using promo code unexpected at PFF to get 25% off any subscription. Continue to do that. Continue to show Chris and the bosses here at PFF that you enjoy the, the good old hashtag content that you're getting from this podcast. Okay, let's get into Thursday night football. Again, Packers at Cardinals opened at three, three and a half, moved up to six, six and a half. I think it settled at six for the Cardinals being a favorite. Of course, there was the news of Devontae Adams being out, Alan Lazard being out. Um, There's probably even a thought of more potential contagion there, which didn't end up happening. But when you suffer multiple injuries to one or multiple losses, I guess weren't, weren't really injuries, quote unquote, in this circumstance, to one particular position group, it can have a bigger effect than if those are spread out. And that was a concern going in this game. Yet, I'm going to already start with the hating. Actually, let me get the rest of the stuff first. I, I, you know, I just can't wait to get into the hating. So I'll, I'll, wait. I'll save my hating for a little bit. Let me, let me get through the rest of the stats here. So uh, 50.5 total and my adjusted scores fresh off the presses here because I just had to rerun a lot of the stuff here with uh, some adjustments to my game grades. So the adjusted score for this game was 29 to 28 Arizona, despite the fact that it being actually 24-21 Packers. So a close game. And if you want to look at the reasons why in this one, there are a few obvious ones, although I think when people think about this game, they may not really concentrate enough on the plays that went against the Cardinals in this one. So if we look at the, the headline stats here, the success rates were about equal. They both had about a 50% success rate, so that made it basically an even game. If you look at the total EPA per play, again, roughly equal in this one. What ends up skewing it a little bit towards the Cardinals for me and for my numbers is the fact that I account for some extra things that we have at PFF. One of them is the fact that there are three, there were three turnovers for the Cardinals. Uh, One of them was the muffed punt. There was another one where it was Obviously, the play at the end of the game where A.J. Green didn't see the ball coming and then it was and then it was caught. And then there was a third one where it was a screen type of pass on third down that went off of Rondale Moore's hands, uh, flipped up in the air. And the Packers ended up with the ball at the 14 yard line, which they did convert for a touchdown there. So obviously, the muffed punt doesn't really go against the Cardinals, only very slightly in my calculation because of the randomness of plays like that. I don't think you could say there's some sort of sustainability of poor punt coverage 
on these huge, huge plays because that was the biggest EPA play of the game. That was a six-point differential that they lost on that one. Biggest play of the game, either direction negative or positive, was that muffed punt. So that's a huge one that ended up causing the, the little bit of a shift there to um, to the Packers and enabling them to win this game. The second thing is that since neither one of those were rated as turnover-worthy plays by our grading, I adjust a little bit off of, of those plays. I give a little tiny bit of credit to the Cardinals. I should probably give them a little bit more credit, quite honestly, because of the nature of those plays where you could say, yeah, their players are still making mistakes, which lead to those plays. And I'll give that to you. But these are not, you know, typical sorts of mistakes. These are mistakes that are going to have a randomness throughout the league, whether it's, you know, balls going off of hands or a receiver just not even realizing what the play call was. There wasn't necessarily the most sustainable sort of plays there. So there's that. So you combine all those together, we're talking about almost 14 points that were lost over those turnovers. And then if you look at Aaron Rodgers, he had some drops, which we give him a little bit of additional credit for. There were drops there. Um, he he was getting really upset about some of those drops, which were like three-yard passes. But anyway, um, start see the hating. The hating is starting already. Uh, the other thing that he had is he did have one turnover-worthy play on a pass into the end zone, which was not which was not intercepted. It wasn't like a, the clearest turnover-worthy play, but it was not intercepted, and then it goes through there. Now, you could think that the Packers, you could say, well, they also had some unlucky stuff happen. They had the touchdown from Aaron Jones, which was called back. They were not able to convert on fourth down a couple of times on some key, key fourth downs, which ended up costing them a lot of points. But they also did convert on two fourth downs. So they didn't convert on convert on two. They did convert on two. So some of that ends up averaging out, which is the reason why they don't get as much credit for being quote-unquote unlucky on some of these late downs. Because if you look at the late downs, the Cardinals did have more of a boost there. When they, they had a fourth down conversion that was big, um, they had more. They converted better on some longer third downs than the Packers did in this game, but not enough to offset the fact that the turnovers that were lucky and the um, and the muffed punt, which was extremely lucky. So if we if we dig further into this game, I mean Kyler was a better player. He averaged uh, 0.1 EPA per play. Rogers under 0.1. So not a great game for Rogers. If you look at some of the additional stats here, you could really just put this as game manager Rodgers and he's getting he's getting a decent amount of praise here but this is kind of reminds me a lot of pre 2020 Rodgers I would say 2015 through 2019 Aaron Rodgers where we were asking what's wrong with Aaron Rodgers this was a similar game now he didn't have his receivers don't get me wrong but he still played the game where it was a low upside game that he had. He had the one big time throw to uh, Robert Tunyon, which he got which, which he got injured on. But other than that, wasn't really pushing the ball down the field. If you take out the Hail Mary at the end of the game, he had a 4.3 yard A dot, one of the lowest numbers that you can have. His yards per attempt, 4.8, only a 56% completion percentage. But his grade wasn't awful for us. I think he had a grade of, uh, of a very nice 69 in this game, a passing grade. Uh, this is subject to review uh, in this game. And the reason was that he just had a bunch of plays that were negative EPA type of plays, incompletions that we were just marking as zeros. We weren't marking it either way. So out of the 40 different dropbacks slash running plays slash penalty plays that he had in this game, only four were negative. So he had a pretty low negative 
play rate, which helped him. Uh, seven were, po- but only seven were positive. So, uh, you know, more positives than negatives, but not a significant amount. Uh, almost 75% of the plays were just graded at zero, where if you look at your normal league average, we grade at zero about 60% of the time. So he was doing more of nothing, basically more of just either making the play happen or throwing the ball away or an incompletion where the receiver wasn't quite open. Um, but he was playing conservatively. I mean, he did have the one the one turnover worthy play that I mentioned. But again, he was he was doing this thing where game manager Rodgers that we've seen in the past. Why this is dissimilar from pressing Mahomes, and I've seen some people try to make that analogy between how Mahomes is pressing now and game manager Rodgers. Not really the same because even game manager Rodgers, when he was playing before. Um, he was throwing it much more in those seasons. They weren't running the ball a lot. He was throwing it much more than the successful running game last night, which the running game was better on a per-play basis for the Packers, of course, than uh, than Rodgers was. Much, much better at converting on third down also than, than Rodgers was. But game manager Rodgers still wasn't turning the ball over. He was taking sacks, uh, which he did not do last night. Only a 20% pressure rate, so he didn't have a lot of pressure there. He was getting the ball out extremely quickly. Um, but... He did not throw interceptions. There was a very long streak even during this down time for Rodgers where I think he had 200 and something pass attempts without an interception. Mahomes, where people are comparing to Rodgers in that time, saying he's not trusting the offense, he's pressing, he's doing other things. Mahomes is still letting it rip, you know, a lot more than Rodgers ever was during that period of time. I think for Rodgers, what we see is when he's not comfortable with what's going on, he, while he throws some really tough throws and some difficult throws and some throws that can get big time throw status and can can boost his grading. He's not taking a lot of risks around the margin. He's not taking a lot of risks around the margin with things that could potentially be intercepted. He starts throwing the ball short. He starts throwing the ball outside a lot um, to avoid those types of plays. And he starts getting rid of the ball quickly and kind of taking these little incremental gains as opposed to uh, taking bigger shots down the field. So it worked out for him this time. But the reason I don't necessarily like the narrative that Rodgers had a great game or even that LaFleur had a great game with the play calling because I thought the play calling near the end zone was abominable with all of the pass plays that they were running when they were starting at first and goal from the two or first and goal from the one. I had no idea what they were doing there. I mean, that that helped it helped boost Rodgers' numbers, his EPA numbers quite a bit, getting a couple of touchdowns down there. Um, but I don't know why they weren't just trying to, to run it in more often when they had the chance. But this was just a game where the Packers kind of fit everything that they needed to do. They needed to get some lucky plays. They needed to have the running game work. They needed to not turn the ball over to just barely get this win and a win off of a miscommunication at the end, which was tipped, which they got an interception from. So they almost even lost the game, even with all these things going right. You know, it's a, it's a philosophy that can win, but the way people are treating this game was as if the Packers were a multiple double digit underdog in this game. And there was a six point underdog on the road. You take some adjustments off of there. We're talking about what, four and a half, four points. If you want to do a small home field advantage because of how that's been decreasing over time, you know, four points on a neutral field between these two teams. It's not that big of a difference really. Um, and yet this was treated as if some sort of like Herculean effort by everyone there. I think they made it look Herculean in a way by not taking many risks. And the defense is what really deserves the credit here because they held 
the Arizona offense down, despite the fact that they gave up a fourth down, which went against them, that they gave up that big play to DeAndre Hopkins earlier. I mean, other than that, they were really, really shutting shutting them down. And I've also heard some people point to the Packers' offense and how many points they were able to score. Well, let's remember, they started one drive on the three-yard line. They started another drive on the 14-yard line. And they converted, like I said, they ended up converting more third downs than you would have expected in total, even though the passing didn't work well, but the rushing game was really, really working for them. So if you want to give praise to the rushing game, if you want to give praise to LeFleur because of his ability to call runs, even though he didn't necessarily call them that much um, near the goal line, I guess you can do that somewhat, but I would concentrate on what the defense did, and I would concentrate on the fact that the Cardinals didn't bring their A game for this one. Uh, Kyler Murray was, I would I think he was better than Aaron Rodgers in this game because he did make some big plays, but there were also some big mistakes and that's what ended up felling them in this game. And I would not really change my opinion necessarily of either one of these teams. I think the Packers defense was better and I was a little bit scared for what would happen for them in this game. Um, but again, the, the turnovers really helped them and the muff punt really helped them keeping the possessions down for the Cardinals. Because uh, they only possessed the ball eight times in this game. So that's that's going to help when you only have that many to go. And then you end up getting turnovers on those drives. That really helps your defense out also in this game. Um, before we get to the best bets, I want to talk a little bit about some stuff on the Twitters, Twitter sphere. I almost said Twitter sphere. Twitter, well, I did say it now. Uh, the Twitter sphere last night. And that was what was going on with the line movement in the Minnesota Vikings game versus the Dallas Cowboys. So let me just pull this up so I can get the exact numbers here. So there, I'm not sure who it started with. I don't know if it started with Aaron Schatz tweeting about this. Uh, I see there was a Cowboys account that was also tweeting about the movement in this. And I think it's probably worth an explanation as to how we should really view this. So again, this was something that opened up with Dallas at a two and a half point favorite early in the week. It fell down to, it went from, you know, fell down to one to a pick to Minnesota being a two and a half favorite, two and a half point favorite all in the course of really an afternoon. It kind of moved down to one beforehand in some places, but then all the way from one to two and a half in the afternoon. And the conclusion that was being posited on Twitter, which was then being echoed and um, broadcast out to others, is that someone knows something about Dak Prescott and his availability, availability in this game with the calf problem and everything else he's having. Now, there was, there's been some – I don't think there's any insider – knowledge going on here. I'll just state that right off the top. I think that is a that is a false conclusion. I think someone is reading the tea leaves and is probably looking at moving some money in that direction. The books may have noticed some sh- a sharp better placing a large bet on Minnesota and now they're moving slightly to account for that. But you can't look at it and say it's gone from two and a half in one direction at the beginning of the week to two and a half now. So therefore Dak Prescott is worth five points. And we assume Dak Prescott is out because five points is a lot of points, right? So you might think that that is the Dak Prescott discount. But between the twos, it doesn't matter as much because so many games are decided by three points, decided by six points, decided by seven points. Very few games are decided between the threes. A move between the twos like that, going from two and a half 
on one side, the two and a half on the other side, accounts for maybe eight, nine percent of NFL outcomes for games where you have a, a total over 50. That's it. Now, if you were to move from two and a half to three and a half, that alone would be a would be a bigger move than moving from two and a half on one side to two and a half on another side. As far as you're jumping over many, many outcomes that are going to come in that three percent in that three line. So it would be a bigger impact for Dak Prescott's availability if we said that let's say Minnesota was a two and a half point favorite and then it moved to three and a half. That would be a bigger impact, a bigger. Um, illustration, a bigger reflection of the potential loss of Dak Prescott, that one-point move, if you want to talk about it in points, that one-point move, then the five-point move from two and a half on one side to two and a half on another side. So just keep that in mind when people are talking there. You have to always think about not just the points that are moving, which points are moving, whether it's impactful or not, because often games will move from one side to another between the threes without any news. So you don't want to read too much into what's going on here. It is certainly not decided that Dak Prescott is not going to play. Of course, who knows? By the time this podcast comes out, I could be proven right or or wrong on this. But there probably is more of a lean in that direction, and people are positioning themselves towards that lean. If Dak Prescott is not playing in this game, Minnesota is going to be much more than a two-and-a-half-point favorite. I don't know what it's going to end up being. I don't know if it'll be five points. I don't know if it'll be six points. I don't know if it'll be seven points. But they're at home for this game and playing against a Cooper Rush-led Dallas Cowboys team that doesn't really have that good of a defense, even though it's been a efficiency-wise, it's been a good defense with a ton of turnovers. Fundamentally, not that great of a defense against a Minnesota Vikings offense, which is pretty good. So just keep that in mind when discussing this. Keep this in mind when you're hearing people talk about this. Not a big move. We don't really know what's going on with Dak, Dak Prescott. We're still in very much in wait-and-see mode on exactly what is going to happen there. Okay, before I get into the rest of the podcast, let's talk DraftKings. This is a good place to put it because we're going to talk about the best bets next. NFL fans, hungry for a big win this weekend? DraftKings Sportsbook, official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win their game. And if they do, you win $200 in free bets. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, it's that simple. If the sportsbook isn't available in your state, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at a million dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only. Uh, Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for more details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And I also want to talk about Western and Southern. Uh, Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? 
Now you can ask about either or both, and every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. That's C-R-I-S, no H. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right, let's get into best bets. I got three of them for you. I'm not going to go through every game. I'm, this is my new thing um, where I don't want to repeat too much of what I was going over later in the week. If you're interested in some other games, shoot me a note in the YouTube comments. I can let you know what my numbers say about them. Okay, so first one going with morning game here. Uh, Carolina at Atlanta. Atlanta's a three-point favorite. It has a 46.5 total, so it's pretty low. I have these teams as being about even including the home field advantage for the Falcons. So the pick here, because we're getting at three, remember that key number three, uh, the pick here is Carolina plus three. So the first thing I'm going to do here, and I thought this is a good way of illustrating team strength, at least for this season, we're going to have priors coming into this season, which are still going to apply despite the fact that we're entering week eight. We're a third of the way through the season. Still going to apply here more than a third of the way through the season. Still going to apply. What happened before our expectations, what we think about Sam Darnold, what we think about Matt Ryan, all those different things. But it's good to know, like, how have these teams performed this year, not just in their point differential, but I'm also, I'm going to look at their differentials using my adjusted scores, using my game grade adjusted scores. And then I'm also going to look at their strength of schedule to date. So if you look at the strength of schedule, if you look at the adjusted score differentials so far, that can give you a better idea of how this team has played so far this year than if you just look at the raw point differentials or if you, or even worse, if you just look at the win-loss records coming into this game. So the expected score averages so far this, this year. The Falcons are being outscored by my expected scores by four and a half points on average per game. The actual point differential is 6.8 points. Now they've come on, obviously, by winning the last uh, couple of weeks in the last three or four weeks as far as how their overall performance has been, but still overall a negative. Carolina, their actual point differential is exactly zero right now. So they've scored exactly the same amount of points as their opponents have scored so far this year, but their adjusted score, they're actually been two and a half points better than their opponents on average this season. They've had a lot of turnovers, and we'll talk about that with Darnold, and they've had a better success rate than they have had uh, their EPA somewhat on defense too, where I think their defense is looking for a bounce back, and they could get in this game despite your hearing out there how well Matt Ryan is playing, and he is playing better in Kyle Pitts and all that stuff that they have going on, on on the other side of the ball. Let's look at their rankings so far this year, just their efficiency rankings, their offenses. Panthers have been poor. They've been really poor the last few weeks in particular. They're 27th so far in the year versus 22nd for the Falcons. and But defensively, Carolina is still fourth in their efficiency versus 27th for the Falcons. So I think this is really the key here. I still think we can rely on that Carolina defense to get pressure against a very poor Falcons offensive line. And then the other side of the ball, I think this sets up well for a Darnold bounce back game. Um, and again, if we're seeing, if, even if we assume these teams are basically even, you should want you should want the the Panthers in this game getting three points even though it's in it, it, it's it's again on the road against the Falcons um, and I think they're a little bit better team. Uh, 
Okay, so look at Darnold. What has he done? So Darnold's been the problem, right? The last couple of weeks, he has four. He has he's lost forty-one expected points, uh, the fourth most on interceptions so far this year. But this sets up well in this particular game. I mean, he's a bottom ten efficiency player under pressure. And the Falcons are 31st in their ability to generate pressure so far this year. The Panthers have had some difficulty protecting Darnold, but I don't think they're going to have as much difficulty in this particular game. Uh, I don't know what the news is on A.J. Terrell is right now, but if he can't go, you already have Isaiah Oliver, uh, their corner on IR. If Terrell can't go because of the concussion, uh, they're really their only two good corners. I'm not sure who they're even going to, going to start if, if A.J. Terrell isn't there. There might be word out there. It probably is be fourth-round rookie Darren Hall, who has 18 coverage snaps in his career. That'll be out there. So they're going to have some, some problems on the back end and an inability to generate pressure uh, up front. This, like I said, is a, in a dome. Everything's set out. I think this is a get-right game potentially for Darnold. And it's not that Darnold is always bad. He's been up and he's been down. So you're really, you know, betting with the points in this circumstance that you're going to get more of a normal outcome out of him than what we've seen in the last few weeks. Um, and the rebirth of Matt Ryan, maybe it's happening, maybe it's not. His play has been good. I'll give you that it's been good, but they've also been a little bit lucky. They should have lost last week against Miami. They really weren't that great uh, a number of weeks ago, even though. Matt Ryan had some good numbers against the uh, Washington football team. We've kind of learned now how bad of a of a team that is. So they've just had some poor opponents that they've been playing here. And I'm just not sure about the sustainability of that going forward. And that's why I'm going to stick with the Panthers here. Look, look at these hated teams. And that's going to be a theme on the bets this week here, my underdog bets. And go ahead and take the Panthers plus three. Now my second uh, best bet of the week is going to be for the Miami-Buffalo game. The Miami Dolphins at Buffalo Bills, 14 points. 14. Imagine what the look ahead would have been on this on a Miami Dolphins-Buffalo uh, game, right? I mean, if you look at, let, let's pull up the odds here. Remember, they played already this year. So that was in Miami. So they played in that one and the line was three it was Buffalo three and a half. So even if you move that, let's say four points for home field advantage, something like that, it would still, and that was in week two, it would still only move up to maybe seven and a half, something like that. Which is which would be which would be a big number. Now we're up to 14. So it's almost double what that amount is. And getting up to 14 is pretty big. I mean, not only are you through the three, the six, the seven, the 10, the 13, but you're also getting a push on the 14. It was 13 and a half earlier. It's moved up slightly here. 48 and a half over under. So they're really expecting that Miami is going to do squat um, as far as their offense is concerned, right? Uh, I mean, let's just, let me just pull up the numbers here just to make sure I have it correct. So if you look at the implied score, that's a 17 and a quarter points for Miami. Get above that amount, you're looking pretty good. Um, Okay, let's look at the expected, I mean, the adjusted scores, the averages so far this year to get a feel for where, how good these teams have actually been this season with in mind the fact that Jacoby Brissett has played still, I believe, the majority of snaps at quarterback for the Dolphins so far this year. So the expected averages, uh, Buffalo leads the NFL as being 
11.2 points point differential above average point differential above their opponents. The actual is 7.5. So I'm 17.5, excuse me. So it's, it's lower, but of course, you know, it's going to be impossible to get up to 17.5. So this is not really saying, well, the bills haven't been as good as they looked. I mean, no one's going to be as good as a team that's beating down others by an average on 17 and a half points per game. Miami, Negative 2.8 this year, again, with Jacoby Brissett, but their actual differential has been negative 11.4. So they're 8.6 better by the adjusted scores on a game-by-game basis than the actual scores. So that is the biggest differential of any team in the NFL. So they have performed better by my underlying more stable metrics than the actual score. It's it's a bigger differential than any other team in the NFL right now, and that's why Miami might be a little bit um, underrated. Uh, Just so you know, I didn't mention that I have this game as being more like nine, eight, nine points versus the 14 of of what it has, where I would put it. Uh, The strength of schedule so far this year is another interesting data point when you're thinking about how the teams have played. The Bills have had the 29th strength of schedule to date, the ninth for Miami. So Miami's had a top 10 schedule so far. So they've been, you know, like I said, negative 2.8 points, according to my adjusted score, but ninth strength of schedule and a lot of Jacoby Brissett. They might be basically, they might be kind of like an average-ish sort of team in if they can get that defense turned around as far as get some, start to get some turnovers, which they're really not getting so far this year. Now, I mentioned on the Tuesday wrap-up pod that Tua against poor competition has graded well against the Jags. And the Falcons has graded well recently in 84 grade his last two games. Um, And he's going to be facing this Bills defense, which has just been amazing across the board. Now, they're slightly worse for their success rate on defense, two being the second-ranked team versus the first-ranked team. Not a huge difference. Uh, The one place where they've been deriving a lot of that EPA gain uh, on defensively that is not necessarily reflected in the success rate is the fact that they have 16 turnovers in six games that they've played. They have the highest net EPA gain on turnovers. So in other words, if you take the EPA lost on their their own offense's turnovers versus the EPA lost by their opponent's offenses, figure out who's net, who's who's lost more. Their opponents have the highest net loss um, versus, or they have the highest net gain, depending upon how you want to frame it, of any team in the NFL right now. And on a per game basis, because they've only played six games so far. And also there's this Texans game, which was a really weird game. I mentioned at the time that the Texans got shut out and their adjusted score was only half a point, which is probably the worst, one of the worst adjusted scores of all times. So they had, um, if you take that game out where they had five turnovers in that game, the Texans had five turnovers in the game. And again, you don't want to do this like if you take it out, if you take it out thing. I know I'm breaking my own rules here about about lowering the sample, but I thought it'd be interesting to look at. So if you take that one out right now, the defense drops slightly. They drop from first in efficiency and EPA per play down to fourth, the Buffalo defense, and they drop from uh, second in success rate down to eighth. Hmm. You know, not, not, not like a huge deal. Yeah. If you eliminate your worst opponent, a lot of defenses are going to fall, but it, it gives you somewhat of an idea uh, for a team that has, you know, has faced some 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 poor teams this year, right? They face some good teams, they face some bad teams. Again, like I said, they have not had the hardest schedule so far, um, year to date. They're 29th in strength of schedule. Uh, Allen leads the MVP race, but 
He actually hasn't been as good this year as he was last year. He's eighth in EPA per play, where he was near the top. He was definitely in the top two or three at this point in the season last year. His completion percentage over X expected is actually not too bad. He's a 5% over expectation, but it was more like 7% last year. So there's a little bit of a, of a decline there in Allen's, in Allen's play. And, you know, this could be a blowout, right? This could happen. I'm not saying this is some sort of guarantee. It's a 14-point line on this one. Um, but I'm going to feel more confident taking the Dolphins here, a team that has just not gotten turnovers, a team that has better success rate numbers than they have efficiency numbers on offense and defense, which shows perhaps they could start to get some of those bigger plays on both ends that'll help them, whether it's turnovers on defense or big plays on offense. They have better fundamentals with a prior coming into the season that is much better than teams that you're typically typically are going to see that are multiple score underdogs like they are in this game. This is not the Texans. This is not the Jets. This is not one of those types of teams. And you're getting 14 points. I mean, Buffalo opened as a 16 and a half point favorite against the Texans when they played earlier this year. And now they're a 14 point favorite against the Dolphins. So just think about that sort of contrast and how you're thinking about those teams. Um, you're going to hope for a backdoor cover or something like that here. You're not necessarily going to be the cleanest game, but you will take it if you get a victory here and just too many points to pass up at this time. Okay, before I get into my last ba- best bet of week eight, I'm going to hit my last sponsor, and that is Manscaped. It's football season, and you know what that means. We're going for two here with the sponsors of today's show, Manscaped. Blitzing through hairs has never been easier, and it's time you join the two million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by using Code PFF at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. That's three and out the window with all other trimmers. Now go tame that wildcat offense. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0, fourth generation, not first, not second, not third, fourth generation, skin safe technology, 7,000 RPM motor, 4,000 LED spotlight, waterproof, rainproof, sleepproof, snowproof, darkness proof. Accidentally cutting yourself proof. It's got it all here. Uh, Get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PFF. Okay, last game here. And this is one where I think people are really not going to like this one. That's why I love it. Uh, It is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the New Orleans Saints. Tampa Bay, as of right now, is a five and a half point favorite, a 50 point total. My numbers have this as more like one or two points that the Tampa should be favored by. Has it very, very close. So the pick here is the Saints plus five and a half. Okay, I know you hate it, but let's let's get into the numbers here. So the adjusted score differentials on the season, the Bucks are positive 6.4 point differential per game according to my adjusted scores. Their actual is 12.3. That's one of the top three biggest differences in those scores. So again, it's tough to get to 12.3 on the adjusted scores because of the plays, but it's pretty significant. It's something to keep in mind that maybe things have been a little bit closer than you think, especially when you look at the Saints. And the Saints, 4.9, positive 4.9, according to the expected score. The, um, I'm sorry, the adjusted scores versus 6.4 for the Bucks. Pretty close, pretty close. Uh, channel my Larry David there. And, but only 6.5 is the actual. So 6.5 is, it's, it's, there's a much smaller gap there between that. And that's because of the lack of big plays. That's because of the fact that they've been, 
running this kind of like low upside type of offense and not really pressing their advantage there as much as they as they could. Strength of schedule. Bucks 23rd strength of schedule so far. Saints 14th strength of schedule. Now, when you get between, you know, 10th and whatever, 23rd, there's not like a huge difference. It's not as big of a difference when you get to some of the outlier schedules on the outside, but it's something to keep in mind that their adjusted scores are similar and their strength of schedule leans a little bit towards the Saints. So I'm not saying the Saints are a better team, but I'm saying it's much, much closer than you think, especially for the Bucks to be a five and a half point favorite on the road in this game. So the offenses, this is the big difference here. 20th in EPA per play efficiency for the Saints and second for the Bucks. And if you look at the splits here, again, the Saints are just running the ball so much more than the Bucks are this year. They're running under, um, they're passing under expectation. The Bucks are passing way over expectation. The Saints efficiency running the ball is 25th this year. Uh, versus 14th when they drop back to pass. Uh, the Bucks are second running the ball and fifth dropping back to pass. And defensively, this is what we're talking about. This is why they're close. It's sixth versus third. And again, sixth versus a much more difficult schedule for New Orleans and versus third for the Bucks against an easier schedule. You know, I get it that Jameis looked awful on Monday night. And if you watch the Manning cast, you had Manning and Breeze, the, the Mannings and Breeze kind of trashing uh, Jameis a little bit subtly, not explicitly, but subtly, especially when he missed this tight end screen at the end of the game and other things that, that he was doing. But listen, he still has a 73 grade on the season, 6% big time throw rate, which is one of the higher ones out there. He's averaging 0.16 EPA per play versus 0.2 for Brady. That's pretty close. Uh, Brady obviously has the number one grade and he's grading much. He's grading better than his efficiency versus the other way for Jameis. But 73 grade is not too bad uh, on the season. And, you know, Jameis has faced pressure 44% of the time versus only 23% of the time for Brady. Part of that is a time to throw differential. Jameis at 2.9 seconds, Brady at 2.3 seconds. But part of that is that Jameis is holding it effectively. He's been effective scrambling the ball. So that's part of what leads to this higher time to throw. So I like it. He hasn't even taken, he has about the same amount of negative expected points on sacks this year that Brady does, but he has 11 EPA on scrambles this year. He's been really scrambling well. He's, he's third behind Patrick Mahomes and Ryan Tannehill and how much he's been added with some strategic scrambling. So for this game, of course, you're going to need to keep the turnovers away. And the turnover with the play rate is the huge difference here. Jameis at 3.2%, which is you know, in, in the bottom half, but not awful so far this year. And then Brady being one of the best in the league with, I think, only one turnover worthy play so far this year. Uh, some good stats here when we're talking about the matchups, if we talk about the matchups further, Antonio Brown out, right? So then you're going to have Evans and Godwin and some other guys out there. So the Lattimore-Evans matchup, I think, is really interesting. Lattimore's playing at extremely high level right now. And there's some great stats that I'm just going to rip off from Mike Clay, ESPN, uh, Mike Clay, friend of the pod, he had some great stats about the Lattimore-Evans matchup. Now, you don't, read, don't read too much into this because small sample, all those sort of stuff, but it gives us something beyond the fact that we know that Lattimore is a good shutdown corner already. So we know that, and we know Evans is a good receiver, but then these stats are telling us a little bit something about maybe how a real physical player like Lattimore, let's see if he's fighting the entire time like he was. He's already gotten into fights with um, Evans in the past. Hopefully these guys don't kick, get kicked out of the game uh, in the first few plays like he did against Metcalf 
in their matchup, where he actually had a successful matchup against Metcalf. Metcalf had that one long touchdown where there was a lot of pushing going on on that one. But other than that, he basically shut him down. So if you look at the fact, they've played eight games against each other. Lattimore has shadowed Evans, essentially shadowed Evans in seven of those games. So in 280 routes where Lattimore was in primary coverage against Evans, uh, Evans has 43 catches for 370 yards. What does that mean? Remember, shadowing for seven, eight games. So only for shadowing for seven games, playing against eight games, only 370 yards. That's less than 50 yards per game. Uh, 1.3 yards per route run, if you look at those stats. Evans, on his career, averages 2.1 yards per route run, so a healthy discount there. And if you think about the game-by-game basis, one of those games, Evans got 147 yards. So he got 40% of those yards in just one of those games. The rest of the games have been very muted. And to go even more to see what, what have we done for me lately with Tom Brady, a quarterback, with everything else happening, the Saints and the Bucks played each other three times last year. And in those three games, this is all stats from Mike Clay still. Props to Mike Clay. Uh, in, in those three games, Evans had one catch for two yards and a touchdown, four catches for 64 yards, no touchdowns, and one catch for three yards and a touchdown. So you got a couple tutties there, but generally pretty good, right? We're talking about three games they played last year, a total of 69 yards, very nice 69 yards that they gave up in, in those games. So without Antonio Brown there, with Evans being locked down potentially by Lattimore, you're going to have a lot of coverage that can go in different directions. Uh, Dennis Allen can put in different directions when deciding how to play against Godwin. I'm not sure if Gronk's going to play or not. I think it's it's looking probable. So how to, how to neutralize Gronk, how to work against this run game, which has been somewhat effective for the Bucs. And they haven't been good generating a pass rush. So if the Saints can get any sort of pass rush going, I think it can be detrimental to to Brady. Although Brady, you know, neutralizes a lot of great pass rushes anyway with how quickly he gets rid of the ball. So not having that pass rush while, you know, all things being equal, you'd love to have it. In some ways, some teams have been also successful against the Bucks playing really really great coverage and trying to get those coverage sacks or try to get turnovers based upon that. They may be able to do that with how they align their defense. And you know, if you didn't need anything else, this is a revenge game. This is a Jameis revenge game. Jameis was, I don't believe this, by the way. I'm a TM, hashtag do not believe this at all. Uh, But I'm going to stay in anyway. Jameis was the favored son. Jameis was the number one pick. Jameis was the potential franchise savior. Jameis was a guy that they kept around for the, you know, the, the fifth year option, all that stuff. He played well, I felt like, despite the turnovers. I know he had the big turnovers, but he played well enough um, to help out, help out the team. And now he has his chance for revenge at home against the Bucks here. Jameis' revenge game doesn't get much bigger than that. All right, everybody, those are my three picks for the week. Uh, Hopefully, these will be helpful for you. If you have any comments, make them in YouTube. I respond to a lot of commentary there. I love seeing the positive feedback there. Go ahead and give a like to the video. Go on to Apple iTunes and leave a review there if you want to leave something else for me to, to peruse and to see eventually. Otherwise, I will come back at you next week to review everything with my adjusted game scores and review what is hopefully a successful week for the best bets. Thanks, everybody, and I'll talk to you then.